Welcome to SGTM Talks. We hope you find this encouraging and inspiring. It is so good to be here this morning. If I've, we've not met, um, I'd like to just say it's so nice to see uh, familiar faces and unfamiliar faces. It's, you're so welcome here at St. George the Martyr. Um, today we're continuing in our series looking at uh, this letter by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And we're going to be looking today specifically at Ephesians chapter 3. And I, I do believe that God has something to say to each one of us this morning through these words. But before we get there, I wonder, have you ever encountered a child telling a story of something that they're really, really excited about? You know the picture, like a a small child runs up to you and they're just breathless because something really exciting has happened and they can't seem to get the words out. And they say so many things at the same time and you can't quite understand anything, but you just know it was really, really exciting. See, that's one way of telling a story. On the other end of the telling the story spectrum is someone like my mum. Now, I love my mum. I love listening to my mum. My mum has a lot of wisdom. She may well be listening to this in the future, so mum, please don't stop telling me stories. But one thing about my mum is that she's really bad at working out what's the important detail in the story to focus on. So to put it like in an example, my mum would say something like, oh, oh, so I was in the car this weekend. I parked the car on the street. I parked it under that tree, and I was driving, and actually, I quite liked driving. The radio was on. It was quite nice, and there was this massive crash, and there was loads of police cars, but it's interesting. I was in a police car the other day, and I saw a police car, and I said, and I'm like, whoa, just go back. What happened? What happened? And she's like, oh, I was in a police car. No, 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 before that, oh, there was a, I was driving. No, no, after that, oh, 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 there was a big crash. And and I'm like, oh my word, can you just get to the main part of the story? Because that's kind of what I really want to know. It reminds me of another story I heard from a small town in Kentucky called Wilmore, where a couple of months ago, it was this small town of roughly three and a half thousand people and it would, it would, over the course of 16 days, become known across the globe for what happened in that small town. But I'll come to that in a moment. See, because in Ephesians 3, we come to a part of this letter where there's a digression. If, I, if I, I'd like to say it's a necessary digression, Paul begins to say something else and kind of backtracking and kind of adding some more detail about the glorious richness of God in Christ Jesus. See, Ephesus, just to recap, Ephesus was this city, this huge city that was an epicenter of worship for both Greek and Roman gods. So people understood spirituality and this idea of faith. In the beginning of of, of Ephesians, Paul uses language of we and you, and it's kind of pointing to this well-known understanding of a demarcation between a Jewish man and a Gentile man, between a Jewish woman and a Gentile woman woman but all of this in Christ Jesus through the account in Acts 2 has been completely obliterated because of the power of the gospel so that there is no more neither Jew nor Gentile but all are one in Christ so he starts using this language and it kind of would make sense for the church in Ephesus but in chapter 2 he begins to talk of these we and the you as one big family So for the hearers of this, they would have been a bit confused, but kind of understanding because, of course, we're all in the same building. So there must be something in common between the two of us. And then we get to chapter three, something I call almost the title of this talk, the necessary digression. So I'm going to read um, chapter three for us. The words will come on the screen. Um, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. 
if my clicker will work. Oh, there that. It will catch up. So I'll read. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus' sake. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ, in former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am, very, I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me that to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless richness of grace, of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in christ jesus our lord in whom we have access to god in boldness and confidence through faith in him i pray therefore that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you they are your glory for this reason i bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and your being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we could ask or imagine to him be glory in the church and in christ jesus to all generations forever and ever amen quite a big reading from paul quite a big digression as it were and i'd love to ask three questions this morning as we engage with what Paul has to say in this chapter. These questions are, what have you heard? What have others seen? And where do we go from here? What have you heard? What have others seen? And where do we go from here? See, as chapter three recounts, the digression of Paul is to highlight not only his role in the church coming to faith, but also about what this means for this new community. And it starts with this question, what have you heard? And Paul begins in the very, the very beginning of our passage to say that for surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given to me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote above in a few words. Surely you have heard. See, I love the ministry of Paul. That little bit at the end isn't meant to look like it's part of the scripture. 
See, he was someone who would travel all across uh, the Roman Empire and, and would be doing his job as a tent maker and he would be going around and around and is helping to establish community after community after community of people to come to faith in Christ. And we read in the Acts of the Apostles that what Paul was doing was significant and it was so significant he would attribute a title to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. A word, this word apostle to the Gentiles, a contested title, because the apostles themselves were those who have seen Jesus in the flesh. But he's not just saying he was one of those, he's an apostle towards the Gentiles. Now it's sometimes quite hard for us to imagine what this might have felt like in a society that was clearly divided between Jewish and Gentile, at least from the Jewish perspective. See, the Jewish people operated within a framework of the covenant made to God, uh, by God to Abraham. That we read about in Jeremiah 31, it says that at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all families of Israel and they will be my people. They will be my people. This is the promise of the Jewish people that they knew that they were God's people. And in our story, we see, and, and in, this, in this emerging church, we see that this people that had this promise by God that they will be his people, all of a sudden, the Gentiles are included within it. This would have been completely baffling for the Jewish folk, but completely transforming for the Gentiles. Because all of a sudden, this closed community of those who lived in the promise of God, they were included within this promise. See, and the thing is that the church in Ephesus would have already heard that Paul was no longer Saul. This man who traveled across uh, the, the area around Israel, persecuting those who claimed to follow the way. Now, this was offensive because this one who believed he was one of God's chosen sought out those who followed Jesus Christ and then has a radical encounter with Jesus and then starts to include the very same people he's persecuted within this promised community. See, so chapter three is recalling the church to remember that this work of God in the Gentiles is important. It says this in verses four to six. It says in a, a reading which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise of Christ. Jesus through the gospel. This is the mystery. Mystery within the New Testament is not a word that the people would use when they've kind of ran out of things to say. You know, like when you ask someone, why do you believe what you believe? And they begin to give an account. And just when they've kind of ran out of all their rational arguments, they can then say, oh, God is mystery. God is beyond all things. For Paul, it is completely the other way around. God is mystery. And out of that mystery, he reveals himself to us through the person of Christ. And the amazing thing here is that Paul is telling the church that it's not just the Jewish people that God had in mind when he created everything. It was all people. This was the plan from the beginning. They have heard through Paul that this was the plan from the beginning. And through Christ, the Gentiles, i.e. those not born within the lineage of Abraham, were heirs with Israel in this covenant. Boom. Boom. That is the promise 
that Paul wants to get across to this church in Ephesus, that you have heard that I did this thing, but the real thing you should hear is this, that you are part of this promise of God. See, the same sort of boom moment happened a few months ago in this small town called Wilmore. See, after a routine chapel service, some students, for reasons that even they aren't really sure about, decided to just stay. They decided to stay back and worship some more. So after a few hours, students heard that there was people staying there and decided themselves to come. And within hours, this chapel was packed. See, worship and prayer went on in that chapel uninterrupted for 16 days. They had free overflow venues. Police had to literally stop cars coming into Wilmore as over 100,000 people came to this chapel. Like most people and most of us in this room, I didn't get to go to Wilmore. I just kind of watched from afar. I wish I could have been there. But more so than that, I long that Wilmore could happen here. That what happened in that chapel isn't just for that chapel. And that I long that that sort of move of God would happen in this place. So that just a few people might stick around to encounter God. And more people will start coming and coming, not to, to follow the crowd, but to encounter God. This is the emergence of the church. This church that Paul is writing to to didn't just kind of start with a strategy. It didn't start with a business plan or a model of leadership of how to do things and how to encounter and how to engage with culture. It started because a few individuals encountered Jesus. And the more they chose to keep encountering Jesus, more and more people wanted to do the same. This is the second question in Ephesians 3. What have others seen? See, Paul says that of this gospel, I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the, play, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Paul had seen something incredible. The church here has seen something incredible because God used Paul. God used Paul. Paul was not a special individual. It's incredible here the humility of a man who, by his own account, was nothing short of someone who was responsible for a massacre, for someone who was responsible for almost an ethnic cleansing to get rid of these people who are starting to follow Jesus, was literally on his way to hunt down those people who said they believed in Jesus and on that road encountered Jesus himself and was radically transformed and given the commission that yes, whilst you are from 
the Jewish race. Your commission is to go out into all the world and to proclaim this abundance, this boundless richness for all people. And yet this man, even though he could have said, God chose me, how wonderful am I, says, I am the very least of the saints. The very least of the saints. And yet God chose him to represent this glorious grace. But see, what others have seen is that it is not a mistake by God. It is not a mistake by God that you are here today. So I generally believe that when God created all things, he had his intentions in mind, and he knew that you would be sat in this room this morning. See, there was not one moment of your life that God does not know what is happening. And it's not a coincidence that you've ended up coming in here this morning to hear these words. And it is not a coincidence that God in Jesus Christ encountered Paul to begin the work of Christ amongst all people post the resurrection of Christ. See, the plan from the beginning was the church. See, in this account in Ephesians, it's one of the rare times in Paul's letters where he, he sort of emphasizes the role of the church, the community of the followers of Jesus, and here he says that it's through the church that the wisdom of God will be made known. Friends, please hear me. The church is not an institution. The church is not the church of England. The church is simply those who attest a faith in the Jesus Christ, our Lord. The community of those who, who give their lives for Christ. The community of those who Christ has revealed himself to. This is the church. It is not an institution. Yes, what we like to do as people is as things start to get good, we start to institutionalize. We like order. I love order. I love rules. I love the way things fit. We like it. It makes us feel safe. This was not God's intention. God's intention wasn't that we would have a structure of power, a, a, a structure that would enable people to become victims of the very gospel which they themselves believe in. This was not the intention of the church. The intention of the church was to bear witness to this boundless riches of Christ. See, don't miss this. The purpose is not church growth. The purpose of God was not that there'll be more bums on the seats on a Sunday and that the electoral roll numbers would go up and church membership would go up and the census would sort of revert. And although, and although the census seems to be going in one direction, more and more people begin to tick that they're a Christian. And lo and behold, we have more Christians, yay. That is not the intention of the church. The, the intention of the church is to be this place where we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. The purpose of the church is so that we can have confidence in God and have confidence in encountering God. I love this video. I love the story of Wilmore, Kentucky. For those who know me know that for the past uh, three years, I was undertaking a doctoral research, asking the question of how a theologian of the last century theology might engage with Generation Z. For those who don't know Generation Z, are those who were born roughly around the years 95 onwards, those who first phone was probably an iPhone, those who don't remember anything other than the internet and other, anything other than social media, those people who are the grandchildren of the nuns, now, that isn't the nuns as N-U-N, but the nuns as in N-O-N-E-S, those people who would take no religion on a census. This generation is a generation that are so illiterate of Scripture, 
a generation that don't have any vernacular of what it means to even know who Jesus is, the sort of generation that says, why are Christians co-opting Christmas? What's it got to do with them? And they don't say that in an act of aggression, but they say that out of total unawareness that Christmas is Christ mass, Christ, Jesus Christ with us. And here in Wilmore, we see just a group of this demographic, this cohort, leaning into the presence of God. And the wonderful thing here is that what would tend to happen, if it happened here, I, I pray it wouldn't happen like this, but it has happened like this over, all over the world, that God begins to move in a place. People begin to experience God. And then the church leaders get on the phone to other church leaders and they begin to book big speakers and big worship bands. And let's make a big thing out of this and let's get the social media going. Let's get this going, let's get this going and let's make a massive thing so that the whole of London will know there's a revival breaking out because we have X person speaking and this person speaking and it almost becomes a conference. See, the amazing story of Wilmore, Kentucky is that the people that you would think should be on the stage were on their knees in prayer at the back. And the people who were leading, they were people, like it said on the video, that people didn't even know they could sing before they just offered themselves. There was a room at the back downstairs before the sanctuary. Normally at conferences, you have a green room. You have a room where, where the pastors and the preachers are pampered. Here's the water, here's the vendor machine, have it. They didn't have that. They had a consecration room. They had a room where those who were going to lead worship would spend hours and hours and hours literally on their knees in prayer, receiving and encountering God before coming onto a stage to lead God's people in encountering this presence. This was not an institutionalized revival. The people, we don't even know their names, who the people that started it. Why? Because it was God who started it. I love the testimony that it was Gen Z, this, this generation that people are writing off as they're not going to do anything. They're become, going to become a nuisance to the church. They're the most irreligious, unspiritual, like in, insecure, individualistic generation that we've ever seen. And we can just count them off. And yet God knew from the beginning of all time that on the 8th of February, it would be through the lives of Gen Z that over 100,000 people would go to one small chapel in the middle of nowhere. And thousands and millions would hear about this thing that took place, knowing that it wasn't just designed from here. See, because what we hear is important. It's important to hear of these stories. It's important to hear of the stories in Scripture where we hear of what God has done in the church of Jesus Christ. And we think, oh, great. That is wonderful. It's almost like a, it can easily become like a history textbook. But see, the third question that I think Ephesians 3 wants to draw us out is where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? So contextually, it would have been an interesting dynamic within this community. This is a group of people, both Jew and Gentile, that would have had completely different cultures, that would have had completely different ways of living. They wouldn't have had a he shared history. They wouldn't have had a shared language. But in verse 14, we see that for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, every family, not just the Jewish, not just every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. And I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. Two things to notice. One 
It's from the unity of God that these prayers come out. It's as Paul himself is united with God that these prayers flow out. But secondly, that he is yearning for the church in Ephesus and the church of Jesus Christ forevermore to encounter the spirit of 